Welcome to the first full-length Engineering Culture podcast episode. We begin by justifying our podcast's existence and focusing on the question, are you improving? This will be both answered for individuals who want to become better software engineers and for companies who want to attract and retain better software engineers. These are the two sides of the same coin. If you want to work at a better company, become a better engineer. If you want better engineers, become a better company. We'll do this by breaking it down into three parts. First, why engineering culture is important. Second, how to think about engineering as a journey, not a destination. Third, whether as an individual or a company, what you can do to make sure you're constantly improving. Okay, let's go. come into work one day and there is a meeting announced without agenda. All your colleagues in the same role at all levels of seniority are likewise invited. Ominous. We've all had meetings like this. As an engineering leader myself, I've scheduled no end of these. They usually have a message that requires subtle delivery, something that once said spawns 100 follow-up questions. No, Best hold back the reason for the meeting and communicate in person where everyone can learn at the same time. Most of the time, it's a perfectly innocuous subject that can be addressed quickly and everyone is suitably relaxed. But not always. You and your other colleagues come together to hear what the new Chief Technology Officer has planned. The meeting is called to order and it's quickly apparent that your job, the discipline that you have trained in for years, honed through numerous years of experience, of success and failure, is no longer required. Your company no longer recognises the value that your current role brings. They give you, all of you, a stark choice. Retrain or leave. I wasn't in that group. I had another job. My role was to watch my colleagues as the new walking dead, either interviewing at other companies or navigating the race to prove themselves elsewhere within this company. By comparison, I had it easy. Years later, I spoke to a senior principal engineer about it and he remarked that was the event that marked the death of the old company. The one he joined, the one he knew and loved. As shocking and poorly handled as it seemed to all of us, life went on, and I stayed years more before moving to another tech company based in a different continent, in a different industry, for different types of customers. This company put people first. Everyone loved working there. You could tell the CEO really understood people. After about a year in the new job, this other company, based thousands of miles away, did exactly the same thing as the last one. Engineering culture is important for individuals working in tech companies. They can lose their job at any time if they're not paying attention to the direction of the wind. But why is it important for companies to pay attention to? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. 
F-A-A-N-G, collectively referred to as Fang. Um, maybe you'll also hear this as Manga, since Facebook named themselves to Meta. Whatever. They are the high bar aspiration for engineering culture because they have led the space over the last two decades to become some of the largest businesses in the world. But the leaders within these companies have moved around a lot and shared the ways of working that led them to the top. What I didn't understand at the time is that the reason both companies gave the same message of retrain or leave to the same group was because they were progressing through a well-worn path of engineering culture that fit with the tech maturity and growth of the company. The two CTOs who made the same play didn't know each other, but they knew what needed to happen and when. As much as companies can dismiss individuals for being on the wrong side of engineering culture, the reverse is true. Companies will have to pay significantly over the odds to even stand a chance of hiring capable candidates if their engineering culture is subpar. Many years ago, I interviewed for a position as head of engineering for a startup which had been going for nearly two decades. Definitely not in the unicorn territory. They had multi-million dollar annual revenues, but had gotten themselves into a hole of poor technical decisions. Their product was built with a language used by less than 1% of respondents in the annual Stack Overflow tech survey. Speaking to their lead engineer, he'd never heard of the phrase tech debt. The product looked like a configuration battleground with no hint of any input from a UX professional. It was an easy decision to walk away, and one I never think what if about. Good engineers are an impact multiplier. They can read about an amazing engineering culture process from a fan company blog and try to implement it in your business. If the conditions aren't right though, the company culture will fight against it. Your best and most driven engineers will leave. is still such a fluid discipline that it's a dangerous industry to ignore engineering culture best practice. Those people who were given the choice to retrain or leave were software engineering testers. Software engineers though should not get complacent. It could happen to any of us. It was after having to ask interviewers in the late 2000s, what was that concept you mentioned? Continuous integration? I realised I had fallen far behind my limiting technology worldview to that of my regressive employers. My employers back then needed me to write some code in C++, some in C-sharp, a bit of com glue code, and occasionally update an SQL stored proc. That was it. No automated testing, no Git version control, no front-end, no web, no operations, no API design, no cloud computing. My skills as a generalist weren't particularly broad and my skills as an expert weren't particularly deep. I knew enough to be useful for my current employer. 
Imagine being a plumber and going round to a house to do a job and say confidently to the homeowner, Ah, Armitage Shanks, I don't know how to work with these sinks. Best call someone else. The boon to Silicon Valley came from millions of engineers having a tradesperson's outlook to their job. When looking to improve your skills, should you specialise or generalise? The answer is both. Becoming an expert in one programming language helps you learn general lessons when looking at others. Knowing the basics about multiple cloud providers helps you drill deep into the details of how one particular cloud service works. The more you can understand end-to-end about how a distributed software system works in terms of both breadth and depth, the more valuable you are to any company. That's what an individual software engineer should do. So what about a company? What should they do? Well, a few things. First, realize that even though the world is churning out more software engineers at a faster rate than ever, it still takes up to a decade of learning to make a good one. There will be fierce competition for good engineers. I just told you what engineers want though. The best ones want to improve their skills and knowledge broadly and deeply across multiple tech areas. They want the chance to learn engineering culture processes that will help them be more effective in any company. You also have to get the culture right around conditions and collaboration, so their first thought isn't to jump ship as soon as they've been taught something useful. The old adage, if you love someone, set them free, applies here. Thankfully, the challenge of making such an environment that is beneficial for engineers aligns well with solving business goals. As hinted earlier with the retrain or leave play, it was at a stage in the culture where the company wanted to get rid of manual software testing and change the balance towards more automated software testing and metric-based verification and alerting. At the beginning of a company, the tech products we're building are pretty much the only automation which is going on. As Paul Graham writes, do things that don't scale. The TLDR is that bigger companies can't afford to. Business leaders must acknowledge that today, every company is a tech company. They grow hand in hand with phases of how much they want to automate. To begin with, engineering is the only team concerned with automation. As their services get bigger and bigger, automation spreads to testing and QA, then to product, to design, marketing and finance. This is what Mark Andreessen meant when he said software is eating the world. Grizzly veterans of tech startups who've done it a million times will look at the size of your company in terms of cash flow, people and tech maturity and know what engineering culture practices you should have. Just like the software engineers, you may be behind the curve of where you should or could be, but that doesn't matter. The best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The next best time is today. Let's see how we can answer the question, are you improving? The good news is, regardless of how you or your company are working today, you can improve. This week, I'm going to talk about an interpretation of what it means to be a software engineer in a modern tech company, how you can break down the skill sets required, 
giving you a model for becoming the engineer who can excel in the most fundamental skills that companies look for. No matter what your skills are today, the key is to improve. As long as you're measurably improving, you'll soon be on a great path to success. Consider the question, what skills is a hiring manager looking for from a software engineer today? This is obviously a how long is a piece of string question. There could be any number of answers. I argue though that there are three layered abilities, one built on top of the other, that point to a truly great software engineer. At the bottom of the pyramid is programming. Someone who is able to take an abstract problem and get a computer to generate a solution. Anyone who is interviewed at a large mature tech company, especially a fan company, will have seen a glut of coding challenges, like those found on HackerRank. This is the evolution of programming. In order to solve business problems with software, people were needed who could solve abstract problems with their knowledge and experience of programming language syntax, logic, and data types. As with any skill where people test themselves, programming challenges were born to take the concept to the next level and the next and the next. Some were repositories of programming problems like Project Euler. Others were challenges to compete with each other like Code Golf. Competitive coding became an intellectual challenge with all the intensity and drive of an elite sport. Advent of Code remains a highlight of the year for programmers looking to test themselves or compare their skills against friends and colleagues over the festive period. But how good a programmer do you have to be to be a good software engineer? This is an extremely contentious question. Many software engineers reject the premise that their programming skills should be tested under exam conditions with timed challenges. The output of a software engineer is ideally not produced under stressful conditions, and rather programming is as much an art as a science. Quality code comes from a mind that is given the time to think clearly. Despite being a creative skill, or more likely because of it, being able to prove your worth as a skilled programmer is hard. Another camp of software engineers believe that you should be able to share your work like an artist does with a portfolio. Products like GitHub, GitLab and Bitbucket give individuals tools to produce open source programming projects which they can share with the world. Potential employers can inspect in great detail the method and measure of a programmer for themselves. Again though, opinion is divided. While many software engineers provide links to their coding projects in their resume, just as many argue that they have families, interests and commitments elsewhere than software, and they prefer not to spend the little free time they have ever more glued to a computer. There is no clear answer of how to assess programming ability or agreed standard of what is a good level to test. For every proposal, there's a valid rebuttal against it. On the spot coding challenges in front of a whiteboard, this tests whether you've memorized hard coding challenges and how to write vertically. Not much about coding. Take home tests for candidates to complete in their own time, how they like. These tests whether you have free time and an inclination for unpaid work. Complex quizzes about the big O notation of data structures and algorithms do show who the programmers with strong theoretical groundings are. But is it really necessary to spot a big O of n squared function for an entry-level position? Regardless of how fit for purpose they are, companies and hiring managers will continue to look for candidates with open source projects 
use timed coding challenges as a way to filter out programmers who cannot code under pressure and ask tough questions at a whiteboard. And they'll expect a higher level of theoretical computer science knowledge than will ever be needed for a job. Programming is one of the toughest skills to measure, so most companies do a bad job at appraising it. For companies, the best advice I can give is to agree internally on what's important for your company, set the standard you're looking for across your interviewers, and be consistent. For individuals, you may encounter some bad programming interviews. Don't be disheartened. We've all failed miserably at a programming problem at some stage in our career. Programming skill is one that improves with practice and experience. If you work on it regularly and stretch yourself, in time you will be able to pass almost any programming challenge someone can throw at you. Included in the episode notes are links to some of the resources mentioned which can help you improve your programming skills and show prospective employers what you can do. In 2001, Bram Cohen created the BitTorrent protocol and a file sharing app that used it. By decentralizing file sharing, he made distribution of large popular files scale with demand. It completely changed the world. Without BitTorrent, there would be no Pirate Bay, which was a massive part of the conversation around copyright law at the start of the 2000s. Where the original BitTorrent app is an outlier, though, is that it was built by a single developer. Every other example of software changing the world required a team of developers to make. Even standout examples associated most with one person were group efforts. Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook got traction with college students but needed more engineers to take over the world. Ken Thompson finished off the first version of Unix over a three-week period while his wife Bonnie took their child on holiday to visit grandparents in California. But Dennis Ritchie and others were involved too. Linus Torvald will forever be the face of the Linux kernel, one of mankind's greatest achievements, but it took thousands of developers to build. To be a developer of any note, you have to be able to work well with others. This is the next skill in the pyramid. This essential ability requires use of the tools of the trade, understanding software design patterns, and collaborating with other developers. If you cannot, your programming skills, however amazing they might be, will be of limited benefit in practice to any company. The tools of the trade span a mix of pure technical and organization. Version control systems and code review tools help the collaborative creation of software. Agile tools for software development lifecycle, or SDLC, bring clarity to the specifics of what is being built and in what order. The market leaders in this space are Git and Jira, though it's clear that GitHub and GitLab are fighting to take control of both version control and SDLC spaces. Even when every problem being solved is new, there are familiar patterns which come up again and again, which great software developers recognize. 
Not only do these software design patterns map abstract problems quickly to working code, they allow for how the computer program works to be explained easily from one developer to the next. Regardless of which tools are used, the most important part of the software developer skill set is communication. Being able to make your intentions clear to your teammates as you listen and understand their unique viewpoints. This will involve conflict. No two people will agree on everything all the time, which means productive disagreements need to take place. Many times there will not be one true and correct answer. Everything in computing is a trade-off with many equally valid options. Two programmers will always solve a problem slightly differently. This means a team of developers have to be prepared to disagree and be willing to change their mind or compromise or sometimes go along with the solution of which they disapprove. Computer science may be exact, but software is just as much an art. Developing it with others requires emotional sensitivity and humanity. arrive at the top of the pyramid. The final skill is operations. I used to be a scientist. While I was researching combinatorial search, I lived with another scientist researching femtosecond lasers. His experiments took hours to set up in a large expensive laboratory. Part of his research included multi-million pound funding grants. I, by comparison, had a tiny shared office and a Pentium PC. Part of the beauty of software is that it's ethereal. Totally abstract, it has no weight, it cannot truly be seen, only observed. Great software engineers know that software is worthless when not paired with hardware. Software isn't useful until something runs it. And when we consider the physical, we have to deal with the physics, with the laws of nature. Information travels at less than the speed of light. There is only so much data that can be stored in CPU registers. Everything else, L-cache, memory, hard disks and so on, are slower. Networks are unreliable, as are cloud services. Understand the service level agreements, SLAs, of the cloud services you use, because together with your service design, they dictate the quality of the service you build for your customers. A software engineer with an operations mindset is someone who can reason about the quality of the system. There are many different qualities of interest to a software engineer. Observability, reliability, correctness, scalability, security, durability, usability, and performance. It's crucial to know how to improve and extend those properties and which ones require attention most urgently. That's it. The three layers of software engineering pyramid. Programming, Development, Operations A software engineer is someone who can solve abstract problems using a programming language, someone who can work with others to develop software which is greater than the sum of its parts, and someone who understands how the software will run on a physical device.
improvement isn't just for the individual, it's for the whole company. The fan companies didn't start out as the behemoths you see today. They followed the path from demo to proof of concept to angel investor-backed startup through series A, B, C, etc. funded to floated publicly traded businesses with billions in revenue. If you have an idea for a startup, the first thing to do is to try to invalidate it. For a 30-second pitch, can you find 10 people who would be interested in using it? If so, proceed to making some wireframe screenshots over a weekend. Can you find 100 people who will sign up to be a trial user? If so, proceed to making a hacky MVP. Iterate. Get product market fit. Get paying users. You'll eventually create a viable business or invalidate your idea. The way a company works at each phase is different. When you're making a hacky MVP, you wouldn't expect to be using an overly bureaucratic process for every production chain or merge request. You cannot iterate quickly enough to find product market fit in this environment. At each point of your company growth, there arrive times where the outcomes start to slow or even outright regress. These are times where the effort you put in used to create amazing gains in growth, but now you're flatlining. When you first ran a localized AdWord campaign, you got 300% increases in sales month on month. Now, one year later, the same strategy is yielding only a 5% increase, simply not enough for the company to progress to the next level. What got you to where you are won't get you to where you need to be. This is called an inflection point. The cure is change. It's chaotic in the short term, but a necessary step on the journey to something bigger and better. The goal of a tech startup is often to become a unicorn company, one that bootstraps itself from nothing to a $1 billion valuation within 10 years. Inflation has made the value of $1 billion less, but the increased tech regulation and higher expected standards these days make the path harder. The principles remain the same though. Iteratively experiment until you find a new product customers want, then aggressively use automation and data in how you evolve your product, growth and operations to achieve exponential revenues. Looking at a company which has done this in practice with hindsight, it's clear to see the phases and big wins they managed. From the inside, there will have been hundreds of extremely painful cultural inflection points where how things used to be done needed to be thrown out completely and a new way found. The people in a hypergrowth tech startup need to be open to change. The most important thing that leaders can do is show the new path. And the most important thing managers can do is help their direct reports navigate the chaos of this transition. To have a chance of succeeding, you need people who understand that things need to change and engage with trying to. Let's try explaining this with an engineering example. The website Hacker News regularly shows engineers arguing about which is the better architectural system design, a monolith or microservices. Those who've seen building and scaling a company at multiple phases know that that's the wrong question. Both are the right choice at different times. 
when you start out, monoliths are the way to go 100%. When you have 10 or fewer engineers, choose a simple client-server database architecture. Here, centralization makes sense. With a small number of engineers, you can make changes quickly and painlessly. When your product is more complex or does more for users, microservices are the way to go 100%. When you have 50 engineers or more, have small, simple services with their own dedicated private persistence layer. Here, decentralization makes sense. With a large number of engineers, you can spread the complexity over multiple teams of engineers, each with a simple business goal to own. It's the transition from one to the other where the pain is. And this is just one example of a phase to progress through that affects engineering culture. Stick with us, there are plenty more to document together. The demands on quality, robustness, and variety of software are ever-increasing. To be a software engineer today requires depth in expertise and breadth in general skills. To be an engineer today is to be a programmer who can solve problems with code, a developer who can work with others to solve something bigger than they could achieve as an individual, and to understand the operations of the software in production, where it creates value for its users. The choice of throwing your effort behind being a specialist or generalist is a false one. It's both. Each is a layer that you build on one at a time until you find yourself a deep expert in many different technical fields. The ones you choose are the ones which interest you most and provide you the most benefit in progressing your career. We'll cover many of those relevant skills as we cover new engineering culture abilities. I was involved in an interview recap recently of a senior engineer from a FANG company. They were skilled as a programmer and developer, but had almost no operation skill. They didn't know how their code was deployed or how the servers ran it. This is because of the engineering culture at this FANG company. It had progressed to a point where development and operations are effectively siloed to some degree. I share this example as a caveat. You can still succeed as a software engineer while ignoring my advice, but it will remain a limit. It's better to be aware of the ways in which you're deficient as an engineer so you understand what you're not good at and when it might be necessary to improve. Ignore engineering culture and you ignore how your job is changing with time. It's not a safe thing for anyone to do indefinitely. The largest, most successful tech companies plot a quasi-repeatable path through various stages of growth. What worked yesterday doesn't always work today. Engineering is no different to accounting, marketing, legal, recruitment, or HR. Every phase along the way from a one-person startup to 100,000 employee megacorp balances different trade-offs in the pursuit of progression. This podcast is going to look at the most important aspects of engineering culture, explain why each is important, and guide you in understanding how to make it play to your advantage. The biggest skill to embrace first, though, is change. Successful evolution of engineering culture comes from teams who are open-minded to thinking about doing things differently.
that's it for this time. Thanks for staying with us. Hope you enjoyed yourself and you got something from it. We're going to be pre-recording most of this season, but we're interested to hear what you think, so stick around and we'll, we'll be in touch about how you can get your thoughts to us. Remember to check the show notes for useful links to further reading. So thanks for staying awesome and see you next time. Bye.